Welcome to David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market and dive deep to understand the issues affecting buyers, sellers, investors, and businesses. If you love real estate as much as we do, sit back, relax, and gain an insider's edge to the exciting world of real estate. David Gorski is a broker and the owner of Sutton Summit Realty, a powerhouse brokerage providing guidance to over 180 realtors. And David Corman is a partner at Corman's LLP, a respected law firm specializing in residential and commercial real estate transactions with offices located in Toronto, Mississauga, and Markham. Good morning, David, and welcome to podcast number 17. And good morning, David. Uh, we got a beautiful day in the GTA today, and um, things are still active. Nice uh, fall weather, and uh, people are getting out. So uh, tell us what's going on in the market these days. Well, the market, David, is still busy. There's still a huge shortage of inventory. We're still seeing a lot of multiple offers. Um, and we're seeing still things move at a really quick pace. Most listings are coming to market. Um, agents are still holding back offers. Sellers are still holding back offers. And there's still lots of bidding wars going on for properties, all types of properties. You know, before you used to have to have the AAA property and, you know, the pie shade bungalow on a quiet street. That's the one that would command multiples. But now we're seeing even houses on busy intersections are coming on the market. The demand is just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, we're seeing the market move really, really quickly. So the, the demand is still outpacing the supply. So it's still keeping that dynamic in the marketplace. Still not as much supply as everybody would like to see out there to, to stop some of the, the bidding that's going on. People are just not listing property for sale, David. We are seeing number of offers go up. So uh, we have a statistic through um, the system that we used to keep track of appointments and keep track of how many offers are registered. I can see that the number of offers being made this year in 2021 compared to 2020 is up 46%. So, you know, consumers are going out there, they're viewing properties, they're, they're submitting offers but they're just not being successful. And we know they're not being successful because the number of transactions is way down, right? So when we look at these, um, when we look at these analytics, you know, it really does point a picture to exactly what's happening, right? Showings are up 3% year over year. Uh, the days in the market um, is down 17%, which means that houses are actually selling faster, right? When the days on the market decreases, houses are selling faster and uh yeah number of listings this is the most convincing one year over year we are down 44 percent which is an astonishing number right and you have to remember that in covid you know people weren't listing their homes either because they were scared they were uh you know not really knowing what's going to happen they didn't want people coming to their homes um, and, and possibly bring the virus into their family settings. So people were really reluctant to list. And then from that low that we've had in 2020, we're still down a further 44%, which is just astonishing. Yeah, but what might be affecting it a little bit, if you remember last year, 2020, we had a, a COVID lull that sort of hit and slowed down the spring market and the summer market a little bit. And then there was an increase in the fall. 
So mm -hmm. September, October, November, even right through December, from our point of view with closings, ended up quite active and quite busy. Uh, you know, so October, for us, for closings last year, October, November, and even December were busy, like really busy months and busier than, than in a normal year because there was sort of that little bit of a delayed reaction. So uh, I think you're probably seeing a little bit of that in those numbers too, because when you're comparing last October to this October, uh, you know, there was a bit of a bump last year that was sort of created artificially by co the COVID delay that happened earlier in the year. There was just that delay of people getting back to the market. So, but still, you know, that doesn't answer for 44%. You know, that might account for some of it, but there's still a, di a big difference. Yeah, I mean, we we basically saw that the um, activity peak in the in the summertime last year, right? That's when all the restrictions were lifted. That's when people kind of started, you know, going back to the new normal, right? Um, but uh, when I look at forty four percent, that's year over year. So that's right. taking, you know, uh, the time in twenty twenty one and comparing it to exactly the same time period um, throughout the whole year in twenty twenty. So I mean, it's still an astonishing number. And I think that really points to where the issue is on the supply side of the chain, right? Demand right. is still very constant. You know, we still have a lot of immigration coming in. I heard numbers that in uh, in July, those are the last numbers I heard, we had about 39,000 immigrants come in uh, to Canada. A lot of our agents, uh, you know, work with a lot of newcomers to, to, to Canada. Um, a lot of dentists, a lot of lawyers, a lot of uh, professionals come in and a lot of my agents, you know, work with them to help them secure new housing. But I mean, you know, again, the demand is outpacing the supply in a big way. And that's what's really causing the problems that we're having, the shortages that we're having in our marketplace right now. And when you, you know, my argument is that sellers have traditionally made a big mistake every single time they sold a property because as they wait, Properties just increase in value. We're seeing this happen over and over and over again. And now we're at a point where sellers just don't want to list because they know they're going to hold their house for another two, three, four months, six months. The value is going to keep appreciating, especially since we're talking about inflation so much. Right. But then you have to look at each seller too, because it's the question really becomes what is their plan? You know, if they're downsizing and they're not in a particular rush to do it, then they might want to wait it out right? Sell, you know, maybe sell next spring's market or something like that. You know, they might be able to get more, but if, but if they're looking to buy as well, cause they're stepping up or they're, or they're going laterally or something, you, you know, generally want, you want them to buy and sell in the same market. Right. So they got to take that into consideration too. So, you know, everything you're telling me so far really reinforces how important an agent is in this process. Cause you imagine you're a buyer out there right now looking for a house and every time you you find something you like, there's going to be multiple offers in there. And you, you really have to rely on the expertise of your agent to guide you through the process and to help you determine what the real value is at the house to, to help you set your expectations as to, you know, how high you might have to bid to get something, whether you're going to overpay it for it. Uh, the fact that there's a really good chance you're going to lose it. There's going to be, you know, eight offers coming in and only one is going to be successful and there's going to be that disappointment. And then you're going to go with the next one. Like it's really, really important to have the proper advice from a real estate, a real estate agent in a market like this. It's paramount. David. I can't stress that enough. And I mean, you know, I've seen 
I've, I was involved in multiple offer situations where, you know, the offer in front of me was a hundred thousand dollars more than, you know, the second offer in line. And I, I think, you know, that agent, even though their client won the house has, is doing a huge disservice to their clients, right? Because whether they paid, you know, we were already at our max, right? Because by this time, everybody get, gets pushed as much as possible. So my, my buyer is already at their max. All the other buyers are already at their max. And this offer that's in front of us is in front of us by leaps and bounds. And whether they're in front of us by $2,000 or $100,000, they're still in front of us, right? right? So again, it's all about building relationships, understanding body language, um, asking the right questions and really representing your clients to the best of your abilities, right? Anybody can go in and, and blow the offer process out of the water, but that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, having a fiduciary duty to your client, acting in their best interest every step of the way and protecting them throughout this process as well. Yeah, and it's a difficult conversation to have with a client when you're trying to manage their expectations. Say, yeah, you, you want to buy this semi that's now uh, going to cost a million dollars to buy when it should have been $850,000 a year ago. And that might be the value. But no, if you want to get this one, it's going to cost you a million dollars. But if you only have eight fifty, dollars you can't get that anymore. You have to reset your sights in something lesser. And, you know, and give up some of the things that are that are on your list of, of priorities. And and that's that's a tough conversation to have with people. It is. But I mean, you nailed it, um, David. I mean, incremental increases and incremental expectations. And, you know, uh, if, if you're looking for that dream home, then, you know, perhaps there's, you know, one or two houses in between. Uh, and that's the route that you have to take in this market. But the most important um, aspect is to, you know, be in the market. Um, I know a lot of uh, listeners out there, you know, um, want to jump in, want to become investors, want to own the property. Come talk to us because there's still a lot of different things we can um, we can show you. There is, um, you know, and actually the, the biggest trend right now that a lot of realtors are are um, exploring because of the lack of shortages is pre-construction um, units for sale through builders, right? And especially in this market where we have such huge shortages in the resale market, when the builder releases a subdivision or when one of these condominiums becomes for, uh, uh, available on the market, you know, we're seeing two, three, four, 500 units come on at one time, right? So there is inventory out there. And that at least solves our inventory issues. Right. And, and that's the, the basic source of, of the new inventory that comes in quickly. And, uh, and there's market conditions that affect the pre-construction market as well. And some of those units, as fast as they come on the market, they get gobbled up pretty quickly too, uh, which puts a lot of pressure on people to make decisions quickly as well. So how do you guys approach it when you when you a, a new release happens at a condo project or in a subdivision? Yeah, and great question, David. I mean, this is this is not a new concept, right? I mean, I think every single real estate that we see that that is resale real estate at one point was sold through a builder, and I mean the way that works is a lot of these builders sell these uh, houses through plans. And, and from layouts, even before they're built, right? So you walk into a sales center and you see 
layout and, and, and models and, and quality of finishes and you can choose which lot you want your house and you can choose you know whether you want to be on the corner or an interior lot and some sites have um, some nice features like ponds or ravines or or some green spaces in the back but every single house that we see at some point you know a lot of them were part of a subdivision that was sold throughout in in, in the process that we're seeing pre-construction being sold right now so um it's not a new concept. It's something that's been around for a really long time. And it's something that a lot of our customers are asking for right now as well. So um, it's actually a great topic that we're going to be discussing. And, and today we're going to be talking about how to sell pre-construction real estate. Yeah. And, and there's uh, you know one fundamental difference when you're in that market is the timing. So in the resale market, you're looking for something that's pretty immediate uh, you could be putting an offer and you might be closing in two, three weeks. You might be closing in a month, 60 days, you know, 90 days is a long time period. You're actually closing and you're, you're in the house. When you're talking pre-construction on a subdivision, you're usually talking, uh, you know, minimum a year or two down the road till it's done, unless it happens to be the tail end of a, of a project. And, and, you know, one of the last few houses that's almost ready, uh, you know, the inventory is almost over for that project. And on a condominium project, you're looking usually three to five years down the road from the time you're going to sign the agreement of purchase and sale until you're actually going to physically occupy that unit. So it's, it's a bit of a, a different time frame, but, you know, fundamentally different there. And you're, you're looking for clients that are going to be waiting that out and you're managing those type of expectations and where are you going to be in the, in the meantime, if it's going to take you three to five years to get in. Where are you going to live in the meantime? Are you renting? Are you buying? Are you living somewhere else? Are you staying? Are you going to do another move in between? So there's a lot of conversations that you as an agent have to have with, with those clients that are totally different from managing their, their expectations on a resale transaction. Yeah, it's night and day. Um, and we're finding that a lot of customers that go and look at pre-construction are investors, right? Uh, especially in the condominium side. Um, but a lot of first-time home buyers buy as well, and timing is an issue. You know, it's, it it is a little bit harder to plan because these projects get delayed, and it's not really the fault of the developer. There's just so many moving pieces. You know, there's land registry, there's um, severances, there's utilities that have to get put in, uh, there's municipalities that have to be worked with, there's utility companies, right? So there's so many different moving pieces, and all has to come together. Yeah, and it's it's very difficult to uh, you know for for builders and developers to to know the exact timing, and that's why there's a bunch of safeguards built into into standard agreements, purchase and sales, and tearing warranties, which we can will discuss, etc. That you know allow for delays in closing, allow for some limited delays in closing, and rights of parties because there's a lot of things that have to be considered there. Now it's really interesting when something new comes on the market, a new subdivision is open, or a new condo project is open. And they announce an opening, and you'd 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 go to the sales office, and you'd walk in, and and all and there's already a whole bunch that are sold somehow when you get in there. Like you're the first guy in the door. Sometimes there's a lineup outside. You get in there, and you see a bunch of red dots on the subdivision because these indicating these lots have already been sold. And you go, well, how did that happen? Or the same with condo units, and they just opened today. And how come they've got all these units that that have been sold? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And again, the, you know, you have to kind of go back and look at real estate over the last 15, 20 years. Builders know that by the time they finish a subdivision, values are going to dramatically go up, right? So in order for them to secure financing to start the building process, usually they have to sell about 60, uh, sorry, 70% of the uh, subdivision or 70% of the building. It could be a little bit higher depending on what terms they negotiate with the, with the lender, but usually that's around the number that uh, units have to be sold. So some builders will hold a number of units and release them closer to the completion date because they want to experience that appreciation in prices, just like the consumer uh, is going to appreciate um, realize their appreciation in prices of her, um, you know, the, the period that the condo or the subdivision is, uh, is being built as well. Right. right. There's also some builders. Uh, I think it seems like it's most builders these days that have some sort of pre-sale before they're officially open to the public. They have some sort of pre-sale for family and friends type of thing. Uh, where they're offering units and a lot of times these are units that are being bought by speculators by investors that sort of jump in on the ground floor and get it you know at good prices sometimes they get you know some of the better units um, or better lots get gobbled up that way and they have these pre-construct like pre-opening sales so that's why sometimes when someone from the actual public goes in they see that there's a lot of the inventory is already gone and, and they're shaking their heads. And not only is the inventory gone, but every time they sell one, the, the price seems to go up for the next comparable unit. Yeah, they, David, they do a couple of different pre-sales, right? So friends and family is a big one. Um, obviously, um, these are big supporters of the developer. These are people that have bought previously. These are people that have bought multiple units. These are, you know, their construction partners that were absolutely instrumental in helping them uh, get the site going. And, you know, they, they open the first release of units to that group of people, right? And then they go down the line, right? So if you're an existing client and you bought previous units, then, you know, you get a right to go in and choose a unit. So they go through this process of these pre-sales and by the time it hits the general public, a lot of the times it's very limited inventory. It's the units that, you know, nobody else wanted because again, it, you know, there's been several groups of people that have been given the opportunity to go ahead and pick through some of the uh, inventory before it actually gets open to the general public. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is generally when they open up, for sale, they're not always offering all the homes in a subdivision or all the units in a condominium. They're often doing it in phases. Sometimes certain floors are available in a condo. Um, same thing in a subdivision. Sometimes, you know, they do it in, in two or three or four phases because they can't build them all necessarily at the same time. So they want to build a certain percentage in the first phase, a certain percentage in the second phase. So they have these different openings for different phases as well that helps them then control actually their construction timing, but it also allows them every time you open a new phase to reevaluate the prices that they're offering and the incentives that they're offering and things like that. So it's not like a, you know, a 300 unit economy opens up and, and all 300 units are available for a buyer. Uh, yeah, I've had interesting conversations with, with a builder because uh, you remember the days when, you know, the builder, you know, in a subdivision would open up, you know, once they do open to the public, and they, they'd end up with these long lineups, like literally long lineups. People were, were camping out overnight to get first in line to get in there. 
And at some point, a few years back, they stopped that process and, and started, they won't even let you in the door without pre-qualifying you. So if you want to come and get into their sales office, you have to go through an application process with the builder first, which will include you know, evidence of your financial ability to, to actually buy one of these because they don't want to waste your time and, and waste a spot or waste their salesman's time in a sales office dealing with someone that may not, that might be a tire kicker or may not just someone that's curious or maybe someone that just won't be able to afford it or won't be able to close. So they won't even in, allow you to come in. They won't give you an appointment to even come in. They won't send you a sales brochure, a piece of marketing, nothing until you qualify as a legitimate buyer. And I thought like, wow, like that's, that's a lot of time and effort. He says, no, but we have to do it. Otherwise we're wasting time. We have a limited inventory. So we don't want anybody in the door unless we know that they could really buy. So, you know, that's another place where an agent comes in uh, to, to play because you're doing the same thing. Like you're qualifying your clients. You have someone interested in new construction. So you're really going through that process too, before you even take them to a site to say, you know, to do your homework and pre-qualify them as a potential, a real potential buyer. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a construction uh, lender requirement as well. They want to know that the 70% of the units that they sell, um, you know, are bona fide sale, right? And they can actually close um, when the unit's built, right? Because that construction uh, mortgage, if those 70 people are not able to, to close on that transaction, well, then they just, they just lent money based on something that can't, you know, come to fruition. Right. So the lender that the builder is dealing with has very stringent stipulations as to, you know, what kind of proof they need and what kind of a prequalification they need. A lot of the times they need prequalification from an A lender and banks have really changed how they do these prequalifications letters because, you know, there has to be a process here. There has to be an actual vetting process here before you used to be able to call up your mortgage broker and say, hey, listen, I want to go buy a pre-construction condo. Can you write me a letter that I'm good? And he'd be like, yeah, no problem. Let me go ahead on my computer, type up the letter, right? But now um, lenders and builders are requiring that an actual pre-approval needs to take place, that there needs to be a case file associated on the, um, on the pre-approval itself, that it needs to be a reference, that there actually needs to be an application on file with the bank. It's a much more regimented process. And where the value of the agent really comes in is a lot of the times, you know, these mortgage brokers and even these financial institutions, they're not really used to working with uh, these pre-construction approvals. So you really have to find the right mortgage broker that can actually give you an approval that will be active three, four, five, six years down the line when the condo actually closes and comes to fruition. Because a lot of the times in the resale market, when you go get pre-approved, your pre-approval is only valid for about 90 days. Right. And, and people fall into that trap sometimes, like thinking they got pre-approved, but they got pre-approved for what? And sometimes, like you said, it, it's for a limited time period and it can't possibly, you can't possibly get this, this condo built within that time frame or the, or the new house. So the pre-approval is not worth anything to you. And sometimes a pre-approval document comes with a whole bunch of conditions. It's like, yeah, yeah, we'll approve you for a mortgage as long as you satisfy the following 20 conditions, some of which they have no chance of satisfying, you know, down the road when you actually look at it. So uh, everybody has to have proper guidance with the proper agent and, and proper brokers that understand this 
and getting uh, something that's a real proper qualified pre-approval. And, and there's really been a flip on this. Like years ago, you'd go into a, to buy a, a new construction and you might sign your agreement and it's conditional, maybe it's conditional on lawyer review, but, but you'd, a lot of times it's conditional on the buyer obtaining financing and make sure you get the financing. And that was a condition in favor of the buyer at the time to make sure you take your green purchase, they'll get it to the bank and make sure you get your approval. But now those clauses have really been switched because it's, it's conditional on financing, but it's really for the seller, the builder to be satisfied that you have proper financing. So even though you think you've got a firm agreement of purchase and sale, if you can't satisfy the, let, the builder's requirements for proper evidence that you could get the financing, the builder pulls the plug on the agreement not the buyer and says, sorry, we're not selling this to you because we don't think you're going to get the financing. You haven't given us enough evidence that you're properly qualified for a mortgage. Uh, we're going to sell it to the next guy. Because yeah. like you said, they need to show this to their lender to get their construction financing. And they need to, to meet that threshold, whether it's 70%, 80%, whatever their threshold is, they, don't, they can't put a shovel in the ground until... They satisfy their lender. They've got real buyers that aren't going to disappear on them three years down the road because they never really got a proper mortgage approval. Yeah. And David, reputation is everything in this industry, but we are seeing some of the smaller builders use some of these technicalities to get out of some of these agreements of purchase and sale because they know that you know this agreement was entered three years ago. The price has already risen 150,000. And if we have 20 units that, you know, we can nullify the agreement and cancel it because, you know, we're not satisfied with the financing that the, uh, that the buyer is providing and the approval, that's 20 times 150 appreciation. You know, that's a lot of money. That's $3 million that the builder can, uh, can make over and above what they've already made just by, you know, reneging on these 20 agreements and reselling the, the, the units at current uh, condo prices. You know, so some of the more reputable builders, you know, don't get into technicalities like that and, and, and are far more reputable. But again, this is where the advice of a realtor really comes into play because, you know, when you enter into a relationship like this and you're waiting, you're putting in, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollar deposit in some of these units and you're waiting three, four, five years. The last thing you want is for the builder to cancel the project or to cancel your agreement. You know, and it really depends on their circumstances. They cancel the project. Your money is fully protected by Terry on you. You will get your deposit back, but you get it back without interest. Right. So and, and we're talking about large sums of money. Like if you put one hundred, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars down, your money is locked in for four years and then you get your money back. Great. But you just got back, you know, what you put in and you haven't made any money on top of your money. Right. And then you're going back to the market to buy something else, but you're buying it with appreciated values. Uh, right. Now, it's interesting. You're saying that your deposit monies are protected. And in many cases, they are, but that's something that we look out for when we're reviewing agreements, purchase and sale to, to make sure that their deposit monies are protected because there are limits on, on coverage. And it depends if it's a condo, depends if it's uh, a subdivision, the deposits are insured a little, a little bit differently. And that's one of the things we, we look at when we're reviewing an agreement of purchase and sale, like who are the deposit checks payable to and, and are they going to be covered? You know, and when was an agreement signed? Because... Um, you know, that, that changes. 
a, a change back in uh, January 2018. So um, it, a lot of times it depends when agreement was signed before that or after that. It seems like, you know, we're now near the end of 2021. It seems like a long time ago, but not in the world of uh, subdivisions and and uh, and condominiums under new construction. Because a lot of times, you know, we're, we're coming up to closings on things that happened three years ago in 2018. So some of these things come into play. So there, there are different coverages we have to look at and make sure, you know, that there isn't exposed deposits because sometimes there are. So certain, like on a condo, certain amount of deposit could be paid to the, uh, to the builder. Like the first 20,000 could be made payable to the builder because that's covered by Tarion. Deposits above that um, have to be uh, covered with proper protection under the trust provisions of the condominium act so it goes to the to the seller's lawyer's trust account and they provide a certificate confirming that they've got it and there's insurance coverage to protect those deposits so you know we hope at the end of the day if you know projects don't go ahead that everybody gets back their money but we've seen you know too many examples where not all the deposits were fully protected and then and then like you said even if they do get all the deposit monies back you know, they get it back without interest and it's three years later and now they're in a different market and trying to go buy another thing and, and they've lost that opportunity. So again, you, you want to go to projects with reputable builders, with the advice of an, of an agent guiding you through it. So there's a better chance that these projects are going to go forward. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree. And I think it's really important to note, David, and I think you know, there's not enough agents taking advantage of this, but especially when you're buying a condominium, a pre-condominium builder, you have a 10-day cooling period that's mandated by law, right? Right. Um, and in that 10-day cooling period, I encourage all realtors and all clients to take the agreement of purchase and sale, including the tarry-on schedule, and take it to your office and, and sit down with one of your lawyers and have it reviewed. It's, it's a fundamentally important process um, you will find out a lot about you know what type of clauses the builder has in there um, your office will talk to the potential buyer about um, delay clauses and what the latest date of delay can be there's a lot in there development charges school levies uh, that need to be discussed uh, but that is a very important process to go through yeah, and it's it's a completely different process when we review an agreement of purchase and sale and pre-construction um, or new construction uh, compared to a, a resale market. Like a standard agreement of purchase and sale, uh, you know, a TREB form or RIA form for a resale market, you know, the standard form itself is what, like two or three pages long, and then you attach a couple schedules, or, you know, a schedule with some additional clauses. Usually a broker has a, a standard schedule B that has certain standard clauses in it. But the whole document is five, six pages long, and most of it is standard provisions and then a few negotiated provisions, which are always important. That, But it's totally fundamentally different than pre-construction or new construction when an agreement of purchase and sale would, you know, would typically be you know, 20, 30 pages long in fine print with a whole bunch of schedules attached, plus the Tarian warranty schedule, plus information on the subdivision or if it's a condominium you've got all the disclosure documents all the condominium documents the the draft declaration and bylaws of the condominium corporation it's uh you know in the, in the days when it was all paper it could be you know six inches thick of, of paper with all the schedules and everything you know now we're getting it electronically 
but it's still a, a lot of volume to go through and a lot of fine print to go through. And the issues that come up on new construction are totally, totally different than resale uh, in terms of timing issues, delayed closing issues, extension rights, uh, and then all the adjustments. And right. I think probably, you know, next week we'll, or next podcast, we'll probably get into some of that and talk about some of the extension issues and the, uh, and the adjustments that we, that we look through, but it's a completely different process. Absolutely. It really is. But having it reviewed by your office is fundamentally important, right? Because that 10 day uh, cooling period is written as a condition subsequent, right? <laughs> Meaning that. <laughs> I, I love when you talk legalese. I just try to follow what you're saying. <laughs> well, meaning that if you don't act, you know, you have an agreement at the end of the, the 10 day period, right? right? So the buyer has to initiate the cancellation, right? Right. right. Um, which is really important to understand that as well, right? You have the option to cancel, but you need to act in order to cancel. And if you fail to act, then the agreement turns firm and binding at the end of the 10 the, Right. Period, right. Which is yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. Like you, you mentioned the ten-day cooling off period, and some people in the public, we get this all the time from clients, is they assume that applies to all new construction, right. but it doesn't. That's strictly in the condominium market. That's built into the condominium act. We have that ten-day cooling period. So, and and the the time that ten days starts once the buyer receives the signed agreement of purchase and sale back from the, from the builder, from the seller, including all the schedules and, and the full disclosure package for the condominium project, if it's a condominium, right? So that's when the 10-day cooling off period starts. So, so, and like you said, you know, by the end of it, if, the, if this buyer does nothing, then the time just lapses and the deal becomes firm. So during that 10 days, we get it. We have to send a letter to the other to the lawyer for the seller after we do our review saying you know we reviewed we're acting for the buyer we reviewed it and uh, in order for us to firm this up we require the following changes we want to delete this we want to amend that we want to cap this we go through that, that process we send off that letter and then we wait for the response because if the builder comes back and says no 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 to everything then it's back in the buyer's court are we going to firm up or not firm up because we've told them that we're not accepting it unless those changes are being made. So now it's back in our court to either say, yeah, we're going to go ahead or no, we're not going ahead. Right. But the important point to make here that, that applies only to new construction condominiums. It does not apply to a freehold, you know, um, property in a subdivision. There's no cooling off period. So we encourage everybody to, to get those agreements to a lawyer as well. And, uh, so the only way you're going to do that is you have to get a condition put into the agreement of purchase and sale that it's conditional upon lawyer review. Sometimes you can get that. Sometimes you can't when the market's really hot. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, builders aren't going to give you that because it's just too much of a, of a lineup. They don't want, uh, you know, if you, you take it as is. Some of the builders are actually will give a buyer their standard agreement of purchase and sale to look at and send it to your lawyer before it's been completed for anything. And they'll say, here, go ahead and look at it. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, and tell us any comments you have, but we're not even signing an agreement with you yet. Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting process, but I mean, when you logically think about it, David, it makes sense. When you're buying a condominium, there's so many moving parts. You know, you you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're buying from a reputable builder. You want to review the buy 
that maybe pets are allowed or not allowed. You want to look at the common expenses. You want to look at, you know, what the expenditures and what the maintenance fees are going to be. You want to look at maybe the property management contract and see how all that is structured. You want to look at, you know, there's so many different aspects that you need to look at when you're buying a condominium unit, not only the unit itself, but you're buying into the building, into the complex, into the amenities, and into everything else. So it takes a lot longer to review all that and to be comfortable with it, right? And uh, I think over, over the last uh, several years, you know, these builders, when they release these units and, and the type of supply and demand that they create through their marketing and, and how they allocate these units and how they release these units and how they go through different spheres and only release maybe, hey, friends and family, but there's only, you know, 30 units available and, you know, friends and family list is 200 and then people see, you know, people getting out checkbooks and writing checks and, you know, they get, you know, bought into this whole hype. Um, so the government came out and rightfully made a 10-day cooling period when it comes to condominium um, um, units being sold. I, I think it's it's very beneficial for the marketplace and, and the buyers, and it keeps everybody honest as well. But that doesn't happen when it comes to freehold sales in, in a subdivision. Yeah, and, and I think it, when you think about it, a lot of it would make sense if if they pass some legislation to have a, a built-in cooling off period in that market as well, because there's a lot of things that go on in that market. There's a lot of frenzy, um, you know, when we, you know, and there's ebbs and flows in these markets too. Uh, it, it's, you know, where there aren't long lineups, um, you know, for potential buyers in these subdivisions, but, but, but that hasn't been the norm in recent years in the GTA anyways, every time a, a new phase a new you know gets released from a builder it seems like they they really get bought up pretty quickly so it's people going in not really having a, a lot of opportunities to negotiate on it but but we do find you know when we do a re review these agreements of purchase and sale you know we're writing letters you know you know dealing a lot of times with these adjustments that they pass on to buyers you know which sometimes are in the 5 10 15 20,000 range in addition to the purchase price so, so we're taking a hard look at that and we're writing to the, to the builder's lawyer saying, hey, you know, you can delete this one, cap that one, tell us how much this one's going to be because we want to have some certainty for the buyers as to what they're getting into. And, and they may have stretched themselves to buy the unit and all of a sudden on closing, they got an additional $20,000 they got to pay to the builder in addition to the purchase price. And, uh, you know, they've already put all their nickels together and they don't, they can't cover that. So we got to make sure they're going in with their eyes open and what they're, you know, and to understand what their closing costs potentially could be the best we can. So, uh, you know, that's an important part of the process too. And sometimes we have success with a builder's lawyer and, and they come back and they give us, you know, they cap some of the costs or delete. And sometimes we get zero success and it just depends on the market conditions and what the lineups are like at that time. Because the no, builders generally get an idea of what they're going to, what they're going to be asked for by lawyers when we do review it. So they sort of have some standard answers that they're prepared to give you at a, at a point in time. But that's that could change a week later because the market could really get quiet or the market can pick up and then all of a sudden they're changing the type of answers they're giving you. So we still have to ask the question. We still have to make the effort. It's really important because those costs can be significant. Absolutely. That was gonna be my next question, Dave, is, uh you know, you do a lot of these, you write a lot of these letters, you communicate a lot with these uh, lawyers that represent the builder. In your experience, what percentage 
of um, the builders are willing to negotiate on some of those in their contracts? Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound evasive my answer because because uh, it really does change with market conditions. But there's many builders, most of the good builders, you know, come up with a plan and they say, okay, we're going to sell these. We're anticipating that this is what the lawyers are going to ask for. Uh, there's been times when we've been early on our project and, and we've gone to, to a builder and we say, look, you know, we, we know that we're going to have a whole bunch of clients on this project. These are the, the things that we're, that we're looking for. And if we agree upon this, you know, for the next few months, any of our clients will agree to the same thing you know, certain built-in changes. And I know that you guys do the, do the same thing. So sometimes they come up with, okay, these are the changes we're prepared to make. And they sort of establish that. Um, I always think it's still worthwhile to ask for more than that because you just never know. The worst they could do is say no again, yeah. right? If you don't ask, you don't get anything. So a lot of times, even though they've already said, okay, we're going to cap certain adjustments and, you know, for these clients, even sometimes, you know, they have that in amendment before we even review it, they've capped certain adjustments or deleted certain adjustments. We're still going through a process where we're going to ask for more. Uh, you know, the worst they could say is no, but sometimes they say yes, and it could be significant savings to a client. Now, I've had conversations with a couple builders, you know, major players, major players in the market. And, and, and they said, don't even bother asking us for anything. You know, this was the last in the last six months. You get don't even bother asking us because our answer is going to be no. So you know, go ahead if you want it because you know you want to show your client they're asking. This is what you'd want to ask for. But I'm telling you, our answer is going to be no on all these projects. We got six different projects going on in the GTA, condo projects, high rise, and we're not doing anything for anybody because we don't have to right now. Yeah, I said all right. You know, that's fine for doing it now, but I, again. You know, I had that conversation probably six months ago with them. If we're looking at units or a phase that comes out in that project right now, I don't know if it's the same answer, right? Because I don't know, you know, I'm not privy to how, how much of a lineup they've got or, or how many qualified buyers they have. So I would still go through the process and still send them a letter. If they say no, they're going to say no. But if they, but you just never know. If you don't ask, you don't get anything. Well, 100%, totally agree. The last uh, pre-construction sale we were involved in, I think they had uh, 10 applications for every one unit that was available for sale. And if you really think about it, that's an exorbitant amount of demand for a very, very low supply, right? And that's why these builders are able to command the prices, they're able to command some of the terms and the contracts that they are is because the market is so geared towards the builder right now. Right. So for you as a, as an agent trying to guide your buyer client through a, a new construction process, I guess one of the keys for you is just, you know, finding out the right project to go to, to take them to like not waste their time trying to drag them into somewhere where they're, you know, they, they can't, they're just going to be in a lineup and they're, they're going to have no success or they're not going to be able to afford it because ultimately they're not going to, you know, have an opportunity, opportunity to negotiate on any of these adjustments. And it's, and there might be $20,000 of adjustments and that might push them right out of their affordability of, of those units. Right. So you got to be taking them to the right project with the right timing expectations and things like that. 
Absolutely. And a lot of those decisions are relationship-based, right? How many units has my office sold with a particular builder? What kind of relationship do we have with that builder? How many allocations are we going to get, right? Um, and I mean, that's the number one question is, you know, if you have the relationship and, you know, you have the allocations um, and you've worked with the builder in the past, then it, it's a lot easier to get allocations. But even then, you know, if you have 10 to one applications, you know, as, as realtors, we really have to set expectations for our clients in terms of how many units uh, they're going to be able to obtain if, if they're even able to obtain one unit from a builder as well. So maybe explain how that allocation system works. You approach a builder and you're trying to get allocations, how that process works. And then let's say you've got a certain allocation, how you deal with that internally within a brokerage like yours that you've got, you know, 200 odd agents that you know, not all you know, are dealing in that market, but many of them are. So how do you deal with it? Firstly, acquiring that allocation and then how do you deal with it internally? Yeah, Dave, a great question. And it's very much the same sort of system that the builder goes through. We have our internal lists as well, past clients that we've worked with and we go down that list as well, right? So we give priority to people that have transacted with us in the past. We give priority to agents that have sold a pre-construction in the past. Um, and, 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 you know, we go down that list as well, the same way that the builder does. So when you look at the builder and you kind of look at the agents and, and, and our clients, you know, it's, it's very much a pyramid scheme and we work downwards and we give priority to, um, you know, the most qualified buyers that have transacted with us previously in the past. And in terms of you approaching the builder saying, Hey, here, we're Sutton summit here, you know, here's our history. Here's what we did with you in your last project. We understand you got this one coming up uh, and you're, you're trying to get an allocation. So what's your, you know, what's your basic pitch to them? And, and then what type of allocation can you realistically expect to get from them? Well, every builder is different, right? But I mean, we put the whole strength of our office behind the relationship. So we have 235 agents, you know, we have um, a lot of agents that deal with pre-construction as, as their main source of income. Uh, one agent, Tariq Jindua, um, you know, I mean, he sells over 200 pre-construction suites uh, a year. So, I mean, he has a phenomenal relationship with some of these builders as well, personally, but it, it's all a relationship business. So we put the whole strength of the brokerage behind our relationships and, and, you know, we sell a lot of volume. So the builders look, look at us and say, okay, you're a Sutton Summit. They have 235 agents. You know, if each agent on average has, you know, a list of 10 amazing clients that have purchased pre-construction before, that's a huge pool of buyers that we have access to. And builders love dealing with big, big brokerages like us because, you know, we, we, we do a lot of volume with them. So what kind of commitment do you get from them in terms of an allocation? Like, what will they say? You got, you got X number of units for a certain period of time that will give it to you first. Uh, if they're not sold, we take it back. Like, how does that process usually work? 
that happens very quickly. So there's a lot of work that goes before the launch of a project. We have to, you know, really set expectations and, you know, have all the worksheets ready to go and uh, really work very closely with the client so they understand the process and, and really what happens next. And the allocations are really given to the uh, platinum agents for a period of uh, uh, sometimes 24 hours. And you have 24 hours to move all those units. And if you can't move your units in 24 hours, then the builder takes them away, gives them to agent, um, and that clock resets. And uh, usually within 36 to 48 hours, um, you know, the majority of the units are, are sold in, in, in a condo building. It happens very quickly. Yeah, the whole process is really fast. You have to mobilize quickly. Uh, you know, the agents that are involved, you know, have to know their clients, have to get them ready. Uh, get as much information to them as they can, as quick as they can, because they got to act quickly. And, uh, you know, that's just the nature of, of the beast. Now, you know, the process slows down a little bit if you actually get under contract, because then you have that 10 day cooling off period to, to deal with it. But you got to get, you got to get in and get, get the unit under contract first to even get there. And, uh, and then the builders aren't happy if they, you know, at the end of that 10 days, if people that you bring them are then passing on it, and, and not going ahead with it, right? They don't want to get it back 10 days later and have to sell it again to somebody else. Well, I mean, if that happens, it really defeats the whole purpose and the whole cycle, right? Because right. now, you know, um, the builder's reputation is called into question. If a lot of units are being returned, then, you know, it, it creates this um, basically catapult effect, right? Um, you know, you want to be able to sell all the units in the first round, close the door and move on to the next project, right? And a lot of these agents that have a lot of sales that we nag in the 10-day cooling period, next time around, you know, they're given less allocations because uh, their clients are determined that they're, you know, um, wishy-washy or they're not committed or, you know, they're backing out. So, you know, there's a lot of politics that go into play here. And how you kind of deal with that is you really have to do a lot of really good grunt work before the launch of the project as a brokerage, as an agent. You know, you really have to uh, vet your clients. You really have expectations. Again, dealing with clients that have purchased pre-construction in the past, your likelihood of them renegging that 10-day period is much lower because they're a lot more used to, you know, when they make the decision and say, okay, you know what, I want to buy this unit. They've purchased units before in the past. They know what the closing is going to be like. They know about the cap fees. You know what the occupancy date, they know what it all kind of looks like. And there's less possibility of them to say, you know what, I changed my mind. This isn't for me. Usually those people that have transacted in the past, um, you know, there's a far lesser degree of them saying, you know what, we're not going to move forward in a 10-day cooling period. And of course, builders love that because they want to sell all the units right away. Right. And, and they want to sell as many as they can quickly because they, they want to get the shovel in the ground and they need that threshold. They need that 70% or 80% or whatever that threshold is to start. And then they'll worry about selling off the rest of their inventory after they're under construction and, and the prices have gone up anyways for that for the, the last 20, 30% of their inventory. They're selling those at a higher values than the first 70% that gets them in the ground. So uh, it's important and they don't want them back. And, and I think as an agent, 
you know, like you, you have to know exactly what your client's going to be able to afford too. And if it, if they're buying a $500,000 condo unit and it comes down to the negotiation on adjustments, and if it turns out there's $20,000 of adjustments and that, and that's going to break the deal for them, then, you know, there's a problem because, uh, you know, so they, if they pass on that, now you got to take them to another one. They still want to buy something. So now what do you, you got to take them something that's going to be, you know, $480,000 price with $20,000 adjustments, like the adjustments are going to be there in one form or another. So you've got to be valuating, you know, what's the, the purchase price, including an expectation of some of these adjustments. Now there might be a negotiation, maybe instead of 20,000, it becomes 15,000, maybe it's 5,000, but you don't want that always to be the make or break. Oh, they're not going to give me a, you know, they're not going to cap the, uh, the levies at $10,000. So uh, you know, I might end up paying fifteen thousand, and that breaks the deal. That you got, you got the wrong buyer. If that's really going to be the deal breaker, right? Yeah. I couldn't take them to the wrong project. I couldn't agree more. the The other aspect that I'm going to say, and I think there's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of uh, um, upset people that I, I'm going to say this, but the contract that the sales office signs with the builder actually penalizes the sales office that represents the builder from representing the client, okay? So let me explain that to you, Dave, because it's actually an interesting concept. So when the builder hires a sales office to sell all the units, they give them a flat fee or a very low fee to represent them, the builder, right? But right. whoever represents the buyer always gets the 4%. So right. if a buyer walks to the sales center and goes directly to the builder's sales office, those salespeople do not get to keep the 4%. Right. They only keep whatever that flat fee is that they negotiate with the builder for selling each unit. Now, this creates a little bit of an issue, okay? Because a lot of times builders, especially when they're represented by a sales office, do not want to deal directly with the client. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because, you know, the client will ask 50 questions. The client's going to follow up about, you know, when uh, closing is going to take place. The client's going to have questions about finishes, right? And they want somebody else to deal with all those inquiries and to manage the expectations of their buyers. All they want to do is sell that project as quickly as possible with, with the least resistance. And, and, and how they do that is a lot of the times when a buyer will walk into a sales office directly and try to talk to any of the staff that's representing the builder, they're gonna defer them to our realtor and say, you know what, we're really busy. We can't really give you the attention that you want. Look, there's a realtor sitting right there. Why don't you go talk to him? Right, it's worth it to them to pay the 4% to an agent because the agent's going to earn that 4% and do a lot of work and, and a lot of, a uh, lot of handholding with the buyer and explain the process and, and find out what's really available and what can be negotiated and do all that. So they're making the agent, the agent's going to earn their 4%. They're making it work, but that's really part of the process. Uh, Cause you're right. The, the people in the sales office are not going to take the time to deal with it. Uh, they don't have the time and they don't uh, and they're not going to sit down with a buyer that way. Yep. I remember and when the builders the are happy to pay the 4%, like it's built into their system. They're happy to pay it. That helps them get the, 
the deal. It's not like they prefer you to come without an agent and, you know, and just put an, an, an offer in. Uh, they won't, they, they're better off paying the 4% in most cases. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of politics there between the builder and the sales office that they hire. And of course, the builder doesn't want to pay the 4%. They want the, you know, the sales office to do their job, sell the units quickly and avoid paying that 4% wherever possible, right? But again, there's a conflict between how quickly the units get sold, who gets paid, and then who deals with the customer's issues and, and you know, all the follow-ups uh, when, when every, every, everything is, is completed. So um, the learning lesson here is, you know, make sure you approach a realtor before going to talk to a sales office, right? Because it will work in your benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we're uh, sort of short on time here. So I think we're going to continue this topic next week. We'll talk a little bit more of um, some of the adjustments that we've been talking about and, and what's involved in that. So what, what people can expect. And I think we should talk a little bit about extension rights and termination rights and notarian protection and things like that that come into play as well and and assignment rights and and you know whether you're a buyer or you're going to be a, an owner occupied or you're just buying an investment and what happens with hst and hst rebates like there's a whole bunch of issues that come into play on new construction and you can't possibly do it in one podcast so we'll have to leave yeah. some of this for the next one yeah, well, I look forward to it, David. It's a great topic. And again, it's so mainstream right now. You know, we're finding that our consumers are asking for pre-construction projects. Again, shortage of inventory. So it's a great market. And I really want to encourage all the resale realtors out there to become more familiar. Again, you already have trust with your existing client base. So, you know, it becomes easier for, for you to go back to them and say, guys, I know you bought a house with me. You have a son, you have a daughter, they're going to university, they're growing up, you know, let's, let's look at this. So, you know, in 10, 15 years, when your son or your daughter is older, um, you, you, you know, you can help them get into the market by purchasing today. So it's a great strategy to offset your business and to do more, more deals, more transactions is to really focus on pre-construction if you're a resale agent to supplement what you're, you're uh, already, uh, the income that you're already earning. Yeah, great advice as always. And uh, looking forward to next week and continuing the discussion. And uh, I think it'll help a lot of people. I agree, That's, David. Uh, okay. Stay safe, everybody. Enjoy your week. And, uh, you know, go look at some pre-construction projects. You know, there's, there's a lot of really awesome ones. Uh, the one that comes to mind right now is something called uh, Beau Soleil, and it's being launched in Burlington. It's going to be a fantastic project. It's getting launched next year. I know um, a lot of our um, realtors have already worksheets signed up, but look it up uh, and, and feel free to reach out to my office if uh, you want any more information on any pre-construction projects out there. Okay, that's great. Looking forward to next week, David. Have a great week. Stay safe, everybody, and get out there. All Resale right. or new construction. Absolutely. Buy real estate. <laughs>